Hello, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study, Thursday evening Bible study. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be reading from chapter 1 and verse 18 to 25. Good to be with you again after a short break. So we're in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, and we're reading verses 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who have been saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment, of, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks demand Seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul has been dealing with the issue of division in the churches in the city of Corinth, and in the course of his argument, he's mentioned the primary focus of his own ministry. The banner that flies over the whole of Paul's life and labours are the words of verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul will preach. Paul is not first a strategist or an apologist or a debater or a counsellor or a social worker. He is, first of all, a preacher. And his message is here. What will he say? He preaches the gospel that centres on the cross of Christ. That is Paul's singular preoccupation. And then his manner is here. So we have his message, his method and his manner, not with words of eloquent wisdom. There is a studied plainness and directness about Paul's preaching that distinguished him, that set him apart from the orators and the rhetoricians the public lecturers, the speakers, with which the Corinthian culture was so familiar. And beginning in our passage, running all the way through 1 Corinthians 2, there is a, if you like, an excursus on the nature of Paul's ministry that covers these themes, his ministry method, his message and his manner. In chapter 3, he comes back to divisions in his church. So, we're looking at Paul's manner, his message, his method. In verse 18 to 25, he's reflecting on what he said in verse 17, that he isn't going to preach with eloquent words of wisdom. Martin Luther, I believe, understood the inner logic of our passage when he used the Latin phrase, crux probat omnia. The cross is the test of everything. And you see, for believers... The cross of Jesus Christ is the gauge and the standard by which everything that is authentically Christian and soul-nourishing and internally valuable is measured. If God will use it and bless it, it must be cruciform, cross-shaped. It will not generally be strong and impressive and adorned with the trappings of power and influence and prestige. Rather, it will have much of the aroma of the unknown Jewish rabbi crucified in shame and ignominy in an often overlooked backwater of the Roman Empire. 
Paul teaches us that Christian ministry, the Christian life, like Christ himself, must be crucified, cruciform, cross-shaped. First of all, Paul says what the world wants. What is it that the world expects? What does it rate and value and esteem? Both in terms of its message and methodology. Then secondly, we need to see what Paul says us that tells us the church has. What are the resources with which the church is equipped when confronted with the expectations of the world? What the world wants, what the church has. And thirdly, Paul wants to help us grasp with renewed wonder and thankfulness what God will do. So that our faith and our confidence rests, rests not in men or in methods, but the power of God at work in the gospel of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So there are three things. What the world wants, what the church has, and what God will do. What the world wants. Paul's answer in our passage is very clear. The world wants wisdom. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, the world did not know God through wisdom. What the world values is wisdom. Paul breaks that down for us in verse 22 into two general categories. The Jews demand signs. Do you see that? The Greek seek wisdom. So the Jews want signs. The Greeks want wisdom. The Jews wanted some miraculous attestation to validate the message about Jesus before they were prepared to believe it. The signs they wanted, according to one scholar, was apolyptic in tone, triumphalistic in character and the embodiment of one of the mighty deeds of deliverance that God had worked on Israel's behalf in rescuing it from slavery. In other words, the Jews wanted water from a rock. They wanted a sea to part. They wanted a plague of frogs to descend before they would believe anything that Paul was telling them. But the Greeks, on the other hand, wanted a message about Jesus to conform to the identifiable patterns of wisdom with which they were familiar. But which in Paul's judgment valued the wrong things. Because to be wise at Corinth in that time would ordinarily have been expected to result in honour and prestige and influence and power. The wise could sway the crowd, they could navigate the politics, they could advance their own social standing. Things have not changed much, have they? We find these two approaches, sometimes in combination, sometimes distinctly, yet generally still embraced as the great model of what it means to be wise in these days. People demand evidence, and the only evidence they would accept is evidence that aligns with their own predetermined prejudices. And people want a message that will fit their judgment about what is politically correct and socially acceptable and culturally fitting. That's, that is what is true and right and wise in the world's eyes. What aligns with my preferences squares with my tastes. Paul's de description, diagnosis of the world is right on target today. Susceptible to self-deceit, twisted by a proclivity to become infatuated with status. And notice that right along with what the world wants, a message of apparent wisdom, there is a 
method. There's a delivery system for worldly wisdom. Paul alluded to it in verse 17. Paul is going to preach the gospel, but not the way the world wants. With words of eloquent wisdom. Wisdom, in order to be recognised by the world as wisdom at all, has to be packaged right. It must come decked out in eloquence, in impressive oratory, oratory, in the tropes and claptraps of the socially acceptable and attractive speech of the culture. Paul makes a similar point, similar point in verse 20. Where is the one who is scribe? Where is the, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? The wise, the scribe and the debater are the peddlers of the age's wisdom, this age's wisdom. Today we might paraphrase Paul by saying, where is the life coach? Where is the journalist? Where are the stand-up comedians? Where are the TV hosts of this age? Those are the models of worldly wisdom with which we are so familiar. And they exert a real pressure on our speech and on our principles. Sadly, we think we have to sound like them if we're to be taken seriously. That's what the world wants. A message heavy with the wisdom of the world and the methodology to match. Secondly, what the church has. The demands for wisdom are real and pressing. And the expectation is that Paul will accommodate both the message and the method to win a hearing for the gospel amongst those to whom he's been sent as an apologist, an apostle, evangelist. In 1909, Harry Gordon Selfridge, the billionaire founder of Selfridges, coined that phrase, the customer is always right. He wanted the point to be made, the customer service comes first at Selfridges. In corporate, companies are keen to find out what people want, what they think they need, so they can give it to them. Probably works well in the retail business, but as a philosophy of ministry, Paul says, no. Because for Paul, the customer isn't always right. If you think about Paul's message, first of all, the world wants wisdom, whether the evidence-based approach of the Jews, the signs, the miracles, or the socially acceptable, self-promoting model of apparently worldly wisdom of the Greeks. What does Paul have to offer in response to the expectations of the world? Verse 18, Paul offers only the word singular, unchanging, unreconstructed gospel, the word of the cross. It's folly to those who are perishing. Or in verse 23, what does the church offer a world that demands wisdom? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. Paul knows what the world wants. He knows that there is nothing more offensive to Jews and Greeks than a message about a crucified Messiah. But he will not accommodate the message to fit the context. Paul will not. It's hard for us to get the sense of how radical Paul has been here because the cross isn't offensive to us as it was to Paul's peers in his day. We put a cross everywhere on condolence cards. We make jewellery out of crosses. Some have churches decorated with crosses. It is ubiquitous. It is inoffensive. It is clean. It is safe. A cross. But in Paul's day, things were different. Listen to Cicero, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from a person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes and his ears. The cross was vulgar, gruesome, shocking. 
So the words that Paul uses in our passage to describe his message capture how people felt about it. He says in verse 18, it is folly. It's foolishness in verse 23. The Greek word is Mariah. We get our English words moron and moronic from that word. That's how people thought about Paul, his preaching and his message. Who would believe such a foolish thing? That the means that God would save the world is the crucifixion of Jesus? And then when he says the Jews found it to be a stumbling block, the word he uses is scandalon. A scandalous thing. An insurmountable obstacle. A barrier to faith. A scandal. So the pressure to lighten up and dumb down the message, repackage the message, was enormous. And the same thing applied to the methodology, not just the message. Verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The folly there applies not just to the message, what we preach, but to the method, the preaching. Literally, Paul says, it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. The word he uses for preaching is caruso. The verb for preaching, to preach along with the other synonyms that are used in the New Testament for it, were never used by the orators and the rhetoricians and the public speakers who were the entertainers and the wise men of the Corinthian world. It wasn't in the rhetorical manuals of the day that showed you how to do wise public oratory. These terms, Caruso, were never applied to the orator's art. Paul is seeking vocabulary that distinguished him from what the travelling wise men did in the lecture theatres and in the public arenas of the Greco-Roman world of the Corinthian day. Paul is a corrux, a herald. He's been sent by his king with a message that he is to stand and proclaim with all authority and urgency. But as a herald, the king's herald, he has no liberty to manipulate or elaborate or accommodate the singular message the king has sent him to preach. Paul is to stand, declare the good news to all the world that God has made provision for sinners in the cross of Jesus Christ. And he knows that as he does it, both his method, his preaching, his message, the cross, are regarded as imbecilic, moronic, ineffective, irrelevant, or well, nothing has changed. Preaching seems irrelevant to the world today. The message about a cross so out of date. The pressure bearing down on Paul to adjust and modify his approach was enormous and is still enormous today. If you look at the mainline denominations of our country, their capitulation to the moral standards and philosophical expectations of the majority. The supernatural is rejected. The Bible is ridiculed. The exclusivity of the gospel, that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. The exclusivity of the gospel is regarded as profoundly offensive. So... The gospel has been accommodated largely to the tastes and the preferences, the expectations of the world. The desire for approval and acceptance has won. We want to be effective. We don't want to cause offence. So 
We tell ourselves that in our own friendship evangelism, we're going slowly. We'll get to the point eventually, but we need to be accepted first. And then time goes by and our friendship with those dear non-Christian colleagues or neighbours begins to deepen wonderfully. But the evangelism never quite happens. We never get round to talking about sin or guilt before God or the urgent need for forgiveness. It's the only thing that matters. Of the penalty paid by Christ in our place to satisfy divine wrath, the reality of hell, the hope of heaven, the call to repentance and faith. We can talk about healing and wholeness and acceptance because that is easy. That's comfortable. We can even mention how the gospel has set me free and given me joy. But do you ever talk about the cross? The blood of Jesus? The curse of God on sin? There's a real temptation to never present the whole story, to press the claims of Jesus with clarity. So the gospel is accommodated to the world, the cross of Christ robbed of his power. But brothers and sisters, the cross is all we have. The good news about Jesus crucified for sinners. Uh, Paul is calling us to take our courage in his hands and make him know. The world wants wisdom. We have the word of the cross. And thirdly, what God will do, the sovereignty of God. You see it in verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there are two groups, the perishing and the being saved. And the distinguishing mark is how they respond to the gospel. The perishing think it's stupid. They disregard it. The being saved are saved by the very gospel message they come to discover is the power of God at work in their lives. God wields it mightily in their heart and saves them. God does it sovereignly by the gospel with the foolish message about a cross. That's why one group embraces it, the other sees it as folly. God is at work. That's what verse 19 says. Quoted in Isaiah 29 verse 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discernment of the discerning, almost a trip over my words there, I will thwart. God says salvation will not come through the wisdom of the world. God will use other means. So verse 21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God uses the folly of the gospel proclaimed. And Paul sums it up brilliantly in verse 24 to those who are being called. The emphasis on God's sovereignty to bring people to himself. To those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks. So this foolish weak message is in fact the power of God, the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God stronger than men. What an unlikely tool for bringing men and women, boys and girls, who think they know better who want wisdom, who are so enlightened into saving faith and redemption and all that Jesus provided. A message about a crucified Christ. Paul wasn't afraid to keep preaching it because he knows that his effectiveness has nothing to do with his own skill and everything to do with the sovereignty of God who takes that weak message and works the miracle of saving grace in the hearts of hearers. Paul gets a hold of the sovereignty of God. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. God does it. Praise the Lord. I don't do it. You don't do it. 
But when we open our weak, lisping, stammering tongues, we open our mouths for Jesus. He takes that foolish message and he does the miracle in the hearts of hearers and saves them. Paul was captured by that message. I'm captured by that message. It enabled Paul in the face of the crushing expectations of the world, demanding a message and a method that conformed to worldly wisdom. Paul was able to stand and keep appearing like a fool for Christ because he knows salvation belongs to the Lord. We confuse the message so often by making it look like it's something I do, but salvation belongs to the Lord. And when he takes a foolish message preached in this foolish methodology by a weak sinner clinging to Jesus, he gets the glory because he does the work and we don't. So if you're going to open your mouth for Jesus, open your, get a hold of the sovereignty of God. We preach Christ crucified, God opens blind eyes. And in the confidence of it, you can fight fear, cross the pain barrier and say something for Christ and see what God will do. See, that, see what God will do if you take him at his word, you stand on his promises, preach a crucified Christ, make him known. In the hands of a sovereign God, the gospel is unstoppable, irresistible, supremely wise. It is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. If you would just be a herald and stand to proclaim King Jesus to the world, God will do the saving and the convincing and the persuading. You don't have to. He will do it. The glory will be his. Oh, my friend, let us have confidence in the gospel, the sovereignty of God who works by it. And armed with that confidence, let us go to the world, emboldened to make Christ known. The world wants wisdom. The church has a foolish message about Christ crucified. But look at what God does. He saves by so foolish a message. Let us have confidence in it and be bold to preach the good news to a world that is in so much need of it. For his glory and our good. Amen.